Good morning, church. I really miss you. I miss seeing your face. I miss worshiping with you. Um, I just want to say I love you, church. I really do miss you. Um, my heart aches for us to be together again. And, you know, as we get into the word of God, before we begin, I just want to say good job. Good, good job following Jesus and sticking and clinging to Jesus in this season. We have been through a very difficult season the past few months. Um, One of the ways I always like to think of it, we're living in church history. Like we're living it. We are in church history. If Jesus does not come back for some more time like this, we'll be in history books. This season where the the church has not been able to gather physically in person will go down um, into history books. And and specifically for us as American Christians, like this this has never this type of collective um, suffering for this long where the people of God can't physically be together, it's unprecedented. Maybe if you are a part of a persecuted church throughout the globe, this is something that you may be familiar with. But for the American church, like this has never happened before. Like we have been going through something truly unique. And I know all of our hearts are longing um, to be together again, to worship God physically, in person, embodied together again. And along those lines, um, I have... Um, an announcement that is so uh, meaningful to my own heart. Um, I want to update us on our in-person gatherings, our Sunday morning gatherings. Um, I'm so happy to to tell you, you can save the date. Um, We will begin our Sunday in-person gatherings two Sundays from now, July 5th. Uh, we will be gathering as a church. Now, um, d- more details are coming soon. We have two weeks where we're still figuring a few things out. We're looking into uh, the possibility of an outdoor venue. And so we're not exactly sure if that will be available, but either way, we're committing to the date July 5th where we will meet in person. Um, we've been hearing from many of you um, we've been hearing about your heart, your conviction to honor God in Hebrews 10.25 and to not forsake, to not make a habit of forsaking the gathering. And now that we, um, the government is allowing us to gather under certain circumstances, we want to be able to provide that for, uh, for you, for those who are able to meet in person. I just want to say thank you for being really patient with us as a leadership team in this time um, and, and, and just continue to pray for us that we can navigate this together and we would have one mind and we would be able to do this and serve you and honor God together. Um, I also wanna recognize that being together as a church in this season, when you have a pandemic across the globe, it's just going to look different. Church is gonna look different. We already know that, um, but it will continue to look different for us. Um, we are committed to honoring the guidelines. We, we wanna preserve and protect um, life physically and our community and um, 
So we are going to honor whatever those guidelines may be. So right now, you know, that's a hundred person gathering, including children. That's wearing face masks. That's being uh, practicing social distancing. At this moment, uh, the guidelines strongly recommend that we don't sing out loud. And so we may have worship playing, but we, we, we're not going to be able to sing physically out loud. And so, I mean, even honestly, let's just pray. God, would you please bring healing of this pandemic? Would you please provide, um, what's it called? A vaccination. Would you provide uh, the, the safety so that even our government is willing to allow us um, to not have masks on and synced with one another? Just pray that God can do that. He can do that. We know that. And so we're just recognizing things are not going to be the same for a while. Uh, I want to specifically recognize that there are some in our church that that this season's gonna be particularly difficult for. Um, young families with little kids, uh, you know, we can't have um, children's ministry right now because, you know, like two-year-olds, like my son can't, uh, doesn't even know what social distancing is and he would not honor that. And so right now we're gonna have kids in service. Um, we're gonna be providing um, the same packets that Jesse is providing on Sundays for you to worship at home or throughout the week. We're gonna have those ready for the kids here, but we just recognize parents that uh, having your child sitting through um, even an abbreviated Sunday morning service may be difficult. We want to acknowledge that. Um, And of course, if in this season, it's still um, more uh, accessible for you guys to worship at home as a family, we completely understand that. We understand there are those whose immune systems may be compromised. It may be unwise for you to gather. Again, we're saying, God bless you. We're going to continue to provide ways for you to worship and have the teaching as as we have. Um, That's not for forsaking the gathering if um, you're not physically able to or it wouldn't be wise for you. So we just want to recognize, church, that even as we begin to gather, things are going to be different and we want to be really sensitive and caring to you. We want to be really flexible. So please keep providing um, feedback for us. I know that some home groups are getting creative, but we just want to be flexible. We want to serve you. We want to provide opportunities for you to worship Jesus. Um, Please uh, keep checking our social media accounts, our website. If you haven't signed up for our newsletter on our website, please do that. We're going to be providing some really important updates and specifics about what our gatherings will look like um, in the coming weeks. And then I also just want to remind you, uh, next third, like this coming Thursday night will be our first kind of together, an open opportunity for us to gather. And we're going to have a prayer meeting here at the church at 7 p.m. We will be providing uh, or, or honoring the social distancing guidelines. We're going to be wearing masks, but we're going to have an opportunity to physically be together. So um, please, if you are able and if it's wise for you, come and pray with us as a church. We'll be praying for our church, for this season, for the future, what the Lord has for us together. So um, we love you guys. Good job hanging in there. Good job walking with Jesus in this season. And I cannot wait to begin to see more and more and more of us in person together. Uh, now, if you would get your Bible out um, and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. John, chapter 6. Um, even as this pandemic is going on, we also recognize that our country right now is going through so much. And our, and our country and people in our communities are starving for hope, for peace, 
for truth and justice. We, we feel this collective longing in our society. And, and I, I love this about God's word because hear me, 2000 years ago in Israel, there was a very similar situation. There were the people of God, the, the Israelites, and they were being oppressed by the, the foreign government, the foreign power empire of Rome. And their public worship was regulated by their government. It was overly regulated. And they had the threat of losing their temple, their opportunity to worship God all the time. There was racial and ethnic and political tensions. There were rebellions and uprisings and wars. There was just this collective longing for the kingdom of God, for the Messiah to come and bring peace. This is it. One of the things I love about God's word is there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. What we are experiencing today in the 21st century is the same type of things that people, humanity have always been experiencing. There's nothing new under the sun and there is therefore no more relevant book to study the heart of God and the heart of man than the Bible. And in our text, it is so perfectly applicable to us, to humanity, to society today. And so we're gonna be covering John chapter six. Uh, We're gonna read verses 41 to 59, 41 to 59. The title of this sermon is, it's really the bread of life part two. We had a part one a few weeks ago. Um, If you want a more specific subtitle, it could be called Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Is enough. So let's read John 6, verses 41 to 59 together. John 6, 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? <laughs> How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh 
is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Let's pray together. Jesus, I'm I'm so thankful for your people. Lord, that you have a people in Carpinteria who love you, who've been saved by you, who long to worship you and to honor you, who long to sit at your feet and study your word. So Spirit of God, I ask that you would, you would help you would help us, you would help all of us to study your word, to open our eyes, to behold wondrous things out of your law. God, would you help me and my weakness and my feeble mind just to be faithful, God, to just help us look together at your word and what are you saying? What does it mean? What does it mean for us? Help me, Lord, in my weakness. And, and I thank you, God, that the power is in your word and in your spirit. And so, Spirit of God, use your word. Send it forth. God, we need you. We need food. We need Jesus. We need true food and true drink. We need to see the glory of Jesus. We need to see that Jesus is enough for us. He's enough for our church. He's enough for our cities. He's enough for the world. So open our minds now, God, give us just your strength to concentrate, to study, to listen. God, that we would not be like these hearers who heard you say these words and then walked away from you. God, that we would hear your word and we would obey you and we would do your word. So help us now, God, for your name's sake. Amen, amen. Well, the great tragedy of all humanity. The greatest tragedy of humanity is rejecting God's provision for life, for flourishing. The chief sin of man the chief downfall of every human being, every human heart, every, every society throughout all history. The tragedy is rejecting the provision of God for our own life and flourishing. Remember Adam and Eve were, were given a garden where there was life and there was fullness and they had freedom to have dominion over all creation, to eat from any tree. They were so richly provided for by God. God would walk with them and they would have communion with God. There was no shame. There was no sin. God has provided for them. And yet the one 
commandment they had is do not eat of this tree. Don't eat of this fruit. And their sin was to reject the good life and good commandments for flourishing that God had given them. And they, cho- they chose to reject what he had provided and to rebel against him and to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and from that moment on, all of humanity has continually been rejecting God's goodness. Now, listen, there, there's, it's, our greatest sin is not just that we rebel against God, but that God is gracious to us and provides for us. And then we reject that good provision. We see it again in the Exodus when God delivered his people from slavery and they were in the wilderness. And then, and then God provided this supernatural food called manna and it would fall from heaven. God provided for them. He provided their freedom and then he was providing for their food even as they were in the wilderness. And do you know what the people of God did? They rejected even his manna. They were sick of it. They said, remember when we were in slavery and we would have these meat pots and these vegetables and these onions? Remember when we had that? It would be better that we'd never been delivered by God to eat this bread. They were rejecting God's good provision. And the greatest way we've ever seen it is when God himself, fell from heaven like manna, the true bread of God, when Jesus Christ took on flesh to come to humanity, to rescue humanity, when God himself came to love and feed and die for the sins of the world, when God came to the world, we rejected him. The greatest sin of humanity is when we reject the good provision and grace of God. And in our text, in John chapter six, we are watching that happen. Remember at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus uh, fed the 5,000, that's 5,000 men. And there's probably at least 20,000 or so people there. And he supernaturally provided bread. He multiplied that bread and they were all eating to their fill. And then he crossed the Sea of Galilee and they came to find him. And then they have this conversation with him. John, the the rest of uh, John 6 after that story is this conversation they have with Jesus. And we find out here that they're having this conversation in the synagogue. This is basically at church and the people come to find him and and they're, they're having this conversation with Jesus. And Jesus begins to say things like, hey, that bread I gave you is good, but I am the bread of life. You need to believe in me. You need to trust in me. That is actual bread. I am the true bread. And, and they, they're, they're asking him questions. Who are you? And are you better than Moses? And are you trying to say your bread's better than the manna that came from heaven and, and prove yourself? And they're beginning to question Jesus. And then we pick it up in verse 41. Verse 41, the beginning of our text. And that, that text begins with the words, so the Jews grumbled about him. They grumbled. Now, that word grumble is a familiar word if you know your Bible, if you think about the context, how this story is resembling the Exodus and how God delivered his people and provided bread supernaturally for them. What do we read the people of God did again and again and again in the wilderness? They grumbled. 
They grumbled against God. They grumbled against Moses. They grumbled against their circumstances. They grumbled against the bread they were given. They grumbled that (coughs) they didn't have any water to drink. They grumbled that when they actually saw the promised land, that the people were too big. They grumbled, they complained, they, they rejected God even as he was delivering them from slavery and leading them to a good place. And so in our text, again, we see the very same problem. The Jews grumbled about him. Now we can break this whole chunk of scripture, verse 41 to 59, really into, into two sections There's really two points here. Um, And and basically it's this. They have two objections against Jesus and then Jesus responds to their objections. That's how you can break it up. There's two objections and then there's two responses. And so this text begins and the first objection is this. Jesus, there's no way you came from heaven. That's their objection. There's no way you are actually from heaven. Look at verses 41 and 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say I've come down from heaven? They're saying, listen, he can't be the son of God because he's the son of Joseph. We watched him from, uh, from his childhood as a little boy. We know who his real father is. His father is Joseph. How can he say his father is God? And so they're rejecting his claim to be the son of God. They're objecting, you are not from heaven. Now, of course, we know the right answer to this. Yes, we know God, Jesus is the son of God. He did come from heaven, but put yourself in their shoes. You saw this little boy grow up and you knew his parents. Imagine someone that you grew up with. You knew their parents as a family friend. And then they reach the age of 30 and all of a sudden they begin to say, hey, I'm actually the son of God and I came from heaven. That would be ridiculous. And so they're looking at him and even though he's doing some miracles and even though he's gaining some popularity, when he begins to claim that he's the son of God, they can't handle it. They can only view Jesus through their natural eyes, through what makes sense to their, their experience before them. There's no way he's the son of God. He's just a man. He's just a man who grew up in Nazareth. He's an unimpressive man. He's just the son of a carpenter. He's, he's poor. How can he, Jesus really be the son of God? And so they're objecting against this. Now, Jesus responds to this objection and we find that response in verse 43 to 51, okay? And we're just gonna kind of walk through it verse by verse and we're gonna see what Jesus has to say and it's gonna be significant for us, I promise. Uh, The first response Jesus says is this. In verse 43 and 44, let's read those together. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The first thing Jesus says, when people reject his divinity, he says, hey, you can't accept me because you're spiritually dead because you can only see with your physical eyes that your soul is dead. 
in sin. You can't believe in me. You're so blinded spiritually that you cannot believe that Jesus is actually the son of God. And, And your hope is that God would have mercy on you that he would save you, that he would take your dead soul and make it alive. He would transfer you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, his beloved son, that your hardened heart of stone would be softened by the spirit of God and it would be a heart of flesh and that you would believe, you would believe that Jesus is the son of God. And he says, and if God doesn't save you, if he doesn't have mercy on you, there's no way you'll be able to accept that I am the son of God. And, and I wanna say this, um, if you were a disciple in this moment and you saw people, rege- you, you, let's say you were Peter and you're watching this great crowd begin to walk away from God because it's like, this doesn't make sense. It's, he's just a man. And as, as people begin to question Jesus, Imagine if Peter's only assessment of Jesus was what, what people thought of him. Well, in, in this moment, there's no good reason to believe in Jesus. Now, I want to say this. And often an objection to the fact that Christianity is true is, well, look at all the other religions. Look at all the people who used to follow Jesus and now they don't follow Jesus. Are you really saying all of these billions of people are possibly wrong? Look at the consensus. It's only like a portion of humanity that believes Jesus is who he says he is. But what Jesus says here is, listen, what makes it true is that God the Father has to save these people, has to open their blind eyes. He has to draw them to himself and rescue them. And so we don't assess, is Jesus the son of God based on people's reaction to him? Listen, the natural person. We were all born in sin. We all reject these truths about Jesus unless God the Father draws us and woos us and saves us. And so Jesus begins, no one can come to me to believe in me unless the Father draws him. And if the Father draws him, Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus begins with that response. First, you just need to be saved. Of course, you don't believe in me. And then he goes on in verse 45 and 46 and he, he fleshes um, some, some more response to them rejecting him. And this is what he says, 45 to 46. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who was from God, he has seen the father. What, what Jesus is saying is the way God the Father draws people to Jesus is through the Bible, through the prophets. It says those who believe in Jesus are those who are taught by God. To, to study the Bible and to be taught by God is to, to find Jesus in the text. And, and, and he's referring to the Old Testament here. He's saying, listen, the way God the Father saves people is he uses the scriptures, the truth of God's word. And he 
opens up people's minds and he enlightens their eyes and he helps them see the truth about God through his word so that they will go to Jesus. This is the way, the means God saves people, that they would be taught by God. This is the way we know that Jesus is who he says he is. When God uses his word to to open our minds that we would understand and hear the truth about Jesus. I want to note a cross-reference here. I want you to see just one example of these prophets in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. This is such a significant little chunk of Jeremiah. This is a prophecy of of this very thing. When, When God uses his word to save people and draw them to himself. Jeremiah 31, 31, and we'll read to 30 through 34. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Hear this, hear this. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall no longer each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah is saying the day, or God through Jeremiah is saying, the day will come when I will use my word and I will write it on the hearts of my people. And my word won't be just like that covenant back in the day where it's these external laws, but it's gonna be something special where it's written internally on their hearts where they will be like, I love God and I just want to obey him and please him. That's coming from within my own heart. And now I know God because he has written his word on my heart. And so as people object to Jesus, they object to his claim to be God. Jesus says, you need to be saved and you need to be saved by the word of God being used by God to open your eyes so that you would behold the truth about Jesus. And then Jesus says kind of an interesting thing in verse 46. He says, not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. And what he's getting at there is when you study the word of God, it's not that you will ever actually see the father because the father is a spirit. He's too much to be seen, but, but the way the father is revealed is through, the, is through Jesus. That's what he's getting at. He's saying, you need, the only way to believe in Jesus is for the father to draw you through his word. But the only way that that will happen is through Jesus. He's saying, I have seen the father and I will reveal him to you. If you remember the beginning of our study in John, it says, Jesus, no one has seen the father, but the word, the son, he has made him known. 
And so it's this crazy interplay where the father has to save people through his word, but people will never see the father, but they'll see Jesus and Jesus reveals the father and he does this all through his word. And the spirit of God is the one who's blowing and bringing new life. It's just this incredible way that people begin to believe in Jesus. And again, these people are rejecting Jesus because they're only looking with their natural eyes. But Jesus is saying, no, you need to be drawn by the Father through the word of God. And the Son of God is the one who has made this all possible. And then he, he closes this idea of how can you really be the Son of God? You're not from heaven. He, he doubles down on this, this fact that he did come from heaven, that he, he was there. If anyone has the right to say who Jesus is, it's Jesus. And he was looking at the father in heaven. And look what he says, verse 47 to 51. He closes this this response. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so he's saying, I'm better bread. Those, your fathers who ate manna in the wilderness, that was a gracious gift of God, but they all died. But he's saying, if you believe in me, that I am the true bread, come down from heaven. If you believe in me, you will never die. I am the son of God. I am the the word become flesh who has come so that if you, I've given myself, my flesh to you like bread, if you would trust and believe in me, you will live. And so their first objection is responded to by Jesus saying, I am from heaven. I am the son of God. I am the true and better bread. And then the second objection, and this is the one that I think is really significant for us. They essentially say this, and this may be your response right now to all these statements Jesus has made. Imagine if you were sitting there listening to this sermon and Jesus is saying all these things, you may respond the very same way they do. And it's essentially this, so what? So what? Why are you telling me all these confusing theological truths, Jesus, that you're true bread and you've seen the father and the prophets reveal that you gotta be you, re, you know, drawn by God and taught of God. So what? They say in verse 52, the, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? What they're basically saying, the second objection is, Jesus, you're not enough. Jesus, you're not enough to meet my needs. So what, Jesus? How can you actually do all of this stuff? How can you actually meet my needs? Why does this matter? Why does it matter, Jesus, that you are who you say you are, that you are the bread come down? How can you really pull this off? How can you give me your flesh to eat? What are you saying, Jesus? These people are clearly confused. They clearly don't have faith that Jesus is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. Now, when Jesus says things like, 
You need to eat my flesh. Jews in that culture, they, they understood what it was to speak in a metaphor. They, they would understand that Jesus isn't literally saying, come up here and take a bite of my arm. And if you don't, you won't have life. They understand he's speaking spiritually, so to speak. But what they're saying is, even so, you're just a man. How can you give, how can you and your flesh be enough for me and my soul and my spiritual needs? How can you give me your flesh to eat? How are you the answer to my questions and my spiritual needs and my desires? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus responds, and we'll look at his response. We'll just look at a few verses. Let's look at 53 to 55. This is what he says. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood as eternal life, I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now, Jesus introduces a new uh, piece to this metaphor. He speaks of his blood. Before, this was all bread of life talk. And now he's introducing there's something else. Not only do you need to eat me as the bread of life, you need to drink my blood. He's using this crazy, visceral, what are you saying, Jesus? I need to drink your blood? And what he's beginning to get at is the idea of his death, that he would shed his blood, that his blood would pour out and it would have a purpose, that this blood must be appropriated by people, that they would drink his blood and they would eat his flesh. He's speaking of the cross. He's beginning to flesh out this metaphor he's been saying to them that he really is from God, the true bread from heaven. And this bread has been given. His body, his flesh will be given and his blood will be poured out. And what he says is, if you drink my blood and if you eat my bread, you will have life. You will have life. And he's speaking here, obviously, of spiritual life because these people are already physically alive. He's saying, but you have no spiritual life. If your soul wants life, it's gonna have to eat the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood. And then he says in verse 55, not only is this speaking of life, you would have eternal life. He's speaking of satisfaction. Look at verse 55. My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. We know that food provides satisfaction and nourishment and drink keeps us alive. It keeps us going. And how good is it when we're thirsty to have drink? Here's the point. Here's where this all All this theology Jesus is talking about really hits home for you, for your life. This is where the rubber hits the road. This is where it's so practical. Hear this. The blood of Jesus is enough 
for every problem in your life. And his flesh is enough to satisfy everything your soul is craving. The blood of Jesus is enough for every problem in your life. And his flesh is enough to satisfy every desire in your heart. There's nothing more important, nothing more pertinent, nothing more applicable than the truth that Jesus is enough. He is enough for you. His blood is enough. His blood is sufficient for every sin you've ever committed. His blood washes away every sin. Every problem you face, every addiction, every place you feel enslaved to sin, every relationship that feels like it cannot possibly be fixed or reconciled, the blood of Jesus is enough. And his flesh that he gave to you is enough to satisfy every desire and longing and craving in your soul. Listen, our world right now is crying out for hope, for justice, for healing, for satisfaction, for a kingdom, for a king, for peace. And it is, it is simply true that Jesus alone is the answer to every one of those desires. His blood is enough. His flesh is enough. And Jesus fleshes this idea out even more in the following verses. Look at verses 56 to 59. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, hear this, abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus is saying, when you believe in him, when the father draws you, when you see in the scriptures the truth about Jesus and you're taught by God and you believe in Jesus and you come to him, that is like eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And he says, and when you do that, when you take my, through faith, my flesh and my blood for yourself, it is like bread and, and it is like food that goes into your body. And all of a sudden Jesus is abiding in you and you are abiding in him. He's saying, do you know why my blood's enough? Do you know why my body's enough? Because when you take these things, you are now in absolute fellowship and communion with God. And when you are in absolute fellowship and communion with God, you have all that you need. 
you have all the life that you need. You have all the mercy and forgiveness you need, all the peace that you need. You have all that you need for life when you are abiding in God and God is abiding in you. Jesus really, really is enough for you. He's enough for you. He's enough to satisfy you. His life is enough. His blood is enough. And remember, what is the lie that our very first parents ever heard? What's the lie that Satan told our parents in the Garden of Eden? It's essentially this. God isn't enough. His ways aren't enough. The food he's provided for you, it's not enough. You need to to walk away from God. You need to disobey God and, and find life and satisfaction over here. And the moment we did that, humanity has been doing that ever since. It's looking for life and satisfaction and peace and forgiveness and reconciliation and a kingdom apart from God, apart from Jesus. And so Jesus left heaven and he gave his life. His body was broken like bread. His blood was poured out so that if you would turn and believe in him, you would be brought back into fellowship with God and his bread, his body would sustain and satisfy you and give you life and his blood would cover all of your sin and it would be enough for you. And so every day, Satan is lying to you. God's not enough. His word's not enough. His ways aren't enough. Jesus isn't enough. His blood isn't enough. And the world we live in is longing for all of these things apart from God. And of course, like these Jews who grumble at Jesus, they don't get the cross, it's foolishness. They don't get the kingdom of God that it's through this cross and through obeying God, it looks foolish. And so the world is just gonna scoff at Jesus and his ways and his shed blood for us. But remember Jesus saying, feed on my flesh and drink on my blood. It is true food. It is true drink. It is true life. Jesus is enough. He's enough for you. He's enough for your heart to find peace and satisfaction and rest and joy in life. Jesus really is who he says he is. He really is the son of God. That's really what all the prophets spoke of, that he would come. It's really what the Bible is all about, about Jesus and what he has done for you. And he really went to the cross and he really shed his blood and laid his body down and was buried in a tomb. And he really rose from the dead. And now he's saying, come to me and you will find true food and true satisfaction. I am enough for you. So God, I just plead that you would use your word and Holy Spirit, you would draw more people to yourself. You would draw them to Jesus. God, I pray if there are some hearing my voice right now, hearing your word explained that have yet to believe in Jesus, 
please draw them. Would they find a Christian? Would they reach out to us at this church that they would know more about you? And God, for those of us Christians who are often struggling to believe you really are enough, that your, your body and your blood is enough, God, I just plead that you would satisfy us in you. That we would turn from our grumbling and our doubts that you are able to do what you say and and that we would experience, that we would taste and see Jesus, that you are good. That we would experience the freedom that comes under the blood of Jesus, that we would be set free. I thank you that it is true that if we believe in you, we are, if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed, that we are no longer slaves to our sin, slaves to our flesh or to the fear of death or the devil, that we are free in you, Jesus. I thank you for the life and the satisfaction that comes as we commune with you, Jesus, as we abide in you. Please continue to satisfy us, your people, on the person of Jesus, the bread of life. We love you, Lord. We need you. Please continue. We know you, are, you will. Please, God, help us feast on Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.